We're continuing in our study of Isaiah. Ever since chapter 13, we've been dealing with judgment oracles. And even now, as I read through Isaiah 21, there may be a temptation in some of our hearts to go, here we go again. It's the second verse, same as the first, more judgment. Well, there's more coming even after this. And as I've reflected on having to go back and preach what seems at first glance another sermon on the same topic, and I resist, by God's grace, the urge to try to be novel or creative, I was reminded of a couple of things this week. I was reminded, first of all, that all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is profitable. Not just our favorite parts, and not just the more familiar parts, but even those parts that are less familiar and perhaps are more difficult. That we need to trust that all Scripture has been inspired, breathed out by God for our profit. And we also need, when we get to a section like this, is to stand back and try to ask the question, why does Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put this passage in this place in connection with all of these other passages? What does God want us to know? What do we need to see that we might be tempted not to see as we might be tempted to dismiss yet another judgment passage. It seems since Isaiah 13 that every one of the main points of every sermon that I've preached could be exactly the same. In many ways, it feels like now for, I mean, we're going on eight or nine weeks from Isaiah 13 to 21 that I have pretty much preached the same sermon over and over again. And I want to suggest to you that that repetition is God's grace to us. It's God's grace to us to help us on the one hand to remember truths that we too easily forget. But I think it's also God's grace to us because one by one, just like Judah God is chipping away at our various justifications. Beginning in Isaiah 13, in all of these judgment oracles, God is saying, do not trust in the world. Trust in my word. Trust in me. Trust in my promises. And just like Judah, we are full of yeah, butisms. Okay, I get it. I don't want to trust in Philistia. But what about Samaria? Okay, okay, maybe not Samaria, but what about Egypt? Is Egypt okay? Can it be your word plus Egypt? Okay, 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 maybe not Egypt. But what about Babylon? That seems like a prudential course. Judah, much like us, is full of Yabadisms. And God in his grace is telling Judah through Isaiah and I think to us, bringing us back over and over and over again, saying the same thing in a dozen different ways, don't 
trust in the world, trust in my word. Is that not a message that we need to hear over and over and over again? Do our weeks on a week by week basis, do they not betray the fact that we are still so prone to trust in ourselves and our own strength and our own wisdom and not trust in the word of God? That when hard times come, we grow impatient. We think surely this can't be what God wants for me. And when God's word asks us to wait, we think that that might be in some way God's unkindness to us. Wait on me. Trust my word. Oh, but I have 10 different options in front of me that could ease my pain, that could grant me control, that could give me some comfort. The message of Isaiah 21 really isn't any different than the message of every oracle that we've seen from Isaiah 13 up to this point. And that big idea of this passage is essentially this. Don't trust in anything but God's word to accomplish his will for us. Don't trust in anything but God's word to accomplish his will for us. We're going to see two points in this sermon. In verses one, and, 1 through 5, we're going to be reminded once again, don't trust in anything but God's word. Don't trust in anything but God's word. That's verses 1 through 5. And then picking up in verse 6 through verse 10, we're going to see a second point. God will accomplish his will according to his word. God will accomplish his will according to his word. So again, we're seeing two things. Don't trust in anything but God's word. God will accomplish his will according to his word. Let me just give you a little bit of context here. Scholars go back and forth on who Isaiah 21 is addressing. What is the nation that they're addressing? Because the oracle, if you notice at the beginning of verse one, just addresses the wilderness of the sea. That's somewhat ambiguous. But they also go back and forth over when this prophecy is meant to take place. I think we could say with pretty great confidence in chapter 21 that Isaiah is talking with Judah concerning Babylon. We see that in verse 9. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. But once we've established the fact that Babylon is in fact the nation that Isaiah is addressing, that's the one that he has in his view there becomes an even more difficult challenge in this passage, and that's trying to discern when and at what stage in Babylon's history is Isaiah addressing Judah. Because we know from the annals of history that Babylon has fallen no less than two times. That early on they had one fall when they were not yet a world power, but were a smaller empire, probably much like Judah. And then they had a much bigger and a final fall that happened in 537 BC to the Medo-Persian Empire. We already discussed that. That's what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 13. I want to suggest this morning that 
what separates Isaiah 21 and this oracle against Babylon from his original oracle in chapter 13 against Babylon is that Isaiah is addressing two different stages in Babylon's history. Whereas Isaiah 13 is addressing the full and final fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. Here in chapter 21, Isaiah is addressing that first fall when Babylon was not yet a world power. It would be a fall to the Medes and to the Elamites. Just to set a little bit of context on what I'm talking about here, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah 39, this will give us a little bit of context. And as we go there, I want you to keep in mind that Isaiah 21, this oracle against Babylon, is parallel to chapter 20, that is Isaiah's oracle against Egypt. The message to Judah with Egypt was don't trust in Egypt. Egypt had attempted to get Judah into an anti-Assyrian alliance, and it seemed like a pretty prudential political move. And now Babylon is attempting to do the same thing ally with us against Assyria and we'll all be safe and better for it. And so God is delivering the same message to Judah concerning Babylon as he did with Assyria. And Isaiah 39, I think, gives us a clue into the context that we see here. Concerning Hezekiah, look at this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, so we've got the prince of Babylon, sending envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and recovered. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver and the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all the realm that Hezekiah did not show him. Hezekiah has grown self-confident and he's showing off a little bit to his new friends. He's thinking Babylon would make a good ally. Assyria is just way too big. So let me give you a tour of the kingdom, Babylon. Let me show you everything that we've got and everything that might be at your disposal if we come into this alliance with one another. But we know that verses 1 and 2, Babylon could not care less about how Hezekiah feels. They don't care whether he's living and they don't care whether he's died. There is a subversive motivation at play. But Hezekiah, in a moment of weakness and pride, shows off for the king of Babylon. We see this in 2 Chronicles. And then we see, beginning of verse 3, Isaiah confronts Hezekiah's selfish response. Follow along with me. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say? From where do they come to you? And Hezekiah said, Well, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. It's interesting how Hezekiah refers to Babylon from this far off country that Babylon had not yet spread and become the world power that it one day will be. It's still an up-and-coming empire. And he said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, well, they've seen everything in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. In other words, all you did was show them the loot that they're going to take when they turn their backs on you. Verse 7, and some of your own sons 
who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. He says, this is going to happen within generations of you. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Hezekiah didn't give any consideration to the long-term consequences. He hears, listen, your sons and your son's sons, well, they're going to face consequences. What Hezekiah hears is, no, that's pretty good. Peace in my day. This is the response of a selfish and a self-sufficient man. Well, this is the context of Isaiah 21. As it, re as it addresses Babylon, not as a world power, but still as a growing power. And it's going to prophesy the fall of Babylon, this first fall, by the Medes and by the Elamites and not by the Persians, as we saw in chapter 13. God is warning them. In chapter 20, he said, don't trust in Egypt. Now in chapter 21, he's saying, don't trust in Babylon. Trust in the Lord. And that brings us back to our big idea. He's saying don't trust in anything but God's word to accomplish his will for you, for his people. Well, let's consider that first point. Don't trust in anything but God's word. We see in verse 1 that this is an oracle. You may remember from our previous studies that oracle can literally be translated burden. That this is a burdensome message. It's a burden that has been placed on Isaiah. Some of you, if you've grown up and you're an old Baptist, you may remember pastor saying, I've got a burden from the Lord and I got to stand up and preach it. That's exactly what's being talked about here. It's burdensome not only because of the difficulty of the message. Isaiah is going to have to preach a hard message to a hard-hearted people. That's hard. But it's also a burden because of the emotional strain on the messenger. And that's what we'll see here in chapter 21. In fact, chapter 21 is unique from the oracles that come before it because it gives us an insight, unlike the other chapters, into the psychology of Isaiah as he is being commissioned by God to preach this message. And so it seems in some way Isaiah 21 is as focused on the messenger as it is on the message. And that's going to be important for our purposes this morning. Keep that in mind. So Oracle means a burden. He's got a burdensome message to deliver. And there are going to be times when the man of God is called to preach such a difficult message that the only response would be the response of the Apostle Paul. Who is adequate for these things? Isaiah is going to get crushed under the weight of this burden in this passage. But continuing on in verse 1. Notice that this oracle is concerning the wilderness of the sea. That if you look to the east of Judah on a map, you'd see the Fertile Crescent. And that Fertile Crescent has the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers running through it. And it's in that desert land that Babylon is located. And we see here that whirlwinds, literally terrifying windstorms, are sweeping into Judah from the south. That's how Babylon would have had to come up into Judah. These whirlwinds from the south coming from a terrifying land, a land of dread, perhaps some of your translations say. 
All of this geographical language in verse 1 is really important to understand the historical situation. But all of this geographical language is loaded with theological freight. Because Isaiah has something unique that he wants to tell God's people. In Old Testament theology, the wilderness is always associated with testing. And the sea with death and chaos. And then when you go to Deuteronomy 8.15, we see the place of Israel's wilderness wanderings is called a terrible land or a dreadful place, a land of dread. The same phrase that's used here at the end of verse 1 is used all the way back in Deuteronomy 8. What does all this mean? Hezekiah's compromise, though Hezekiah seems somewhat unconcerned with it, Hezekiah's compromise has planted the seeds that will later grow into the Babylonian captivity. And when Israel is taken into captivity... The exilic prophets, those prophets who were operative during the exile, are going to regularly use the language of the exodus, of wilderness, and of wondering, of exodus. That they preach the need for a new exodus because Israel was in a new captivity in a terrible land, just like the days of old. So Isaiah is saying, this is what's coming. In the same way that you were enslaved in a terrible land before, so because of your sin and your faithfulness to obey the covenant, you will be enslaved once again to a terrible land. It's going to come up like a violent wind against you. Well, in verse 2, Hezekiah is compromised. He's getting friendly with Babylon. But in verse 2, God gives Isaiah a vision of Babylon's first and initial fall. He says, a stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays, the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Media. All the sighting she has caused, I bring to an end. Some scholars believe, and I think the evidence of this passage agrees with them, that the vision in the first half of verse 2 may be repeating the words that Babylon is essentially feeding to Hezekiah as Babylon is trying to get Judah to ally with them. That they're feeding false information and propaganda to Hezekiah in his attempt to form an alliance that Assyria is treacherous. They are the betrayer. They are the ones continuing to destroy everything. In fact, that language that we see there at the beginning of verse 2 is the exact same language, almost verbatim, that's used to describe Assyria in chapter 33. There's no doubt that the language is the language of Assyria. And so perhaps this is Babylon whispering into the ear of Hezekiah, spreading propaganda onto Judah, saying, consider Assyria, and in all of its terror, consider allying with us. Well, in 689 BC, both Elam and Media were players in the Babylonian siege. That's what we see in the second half of chapter 2. They're the ones that are going to be responsible, according to this prophecy, of taking out Babylon. But here's what's interesting. By the year 539 BC, when Babylon is fully and finally brought down, Elam isn't even around anymore. It doesn't exist. So Isaiah's vision can't be concerned with Babylon's second and final destruction in 539 BC. But rather, he's concerned with when it falls the first time, when they're not yet a world power, when they're still trying to get their bearings in this political drama on the Fertile Crescent. 
So Babylon, not yet a world power at this time, is trying to get Hezekiah and Judah to form an alliance against Assyria. And then Hezekiah invites them in, shows off all of the stores for him. And now Isaiah receives a vision revealing why this alliance would, would ultimately be a disaster. I think this is a lesson for us from Hezekiah. That just because our sin doesn't seem to carry consequences in the present doesn't mean that our sin won't have consequences in the future. Sin always presents us with a bill, and that bill always comes. Brothers and sisters, if there is sin in your life that has gone undealt with, and you have not taken it seriously because you cannot perceive any real or practical consequences in the here and now, I would encourage you to be instructed from the life of Hezekiah. The bill will come. Let's take sin seriously. Confess it and put it to death and not grow prideful like the king and like Judah. So we've seen in verse 1 a hot wind. And there in verse 2 we see a hard vision. And now in verses 3 and 4 we're going to see a horrified prophet. We're going to see here in verses 3 and 4 the impact of this vision on Isaiah. Follow along with me. Therefore, my loins, he says, are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. I'm bowed down so that I can't hear. I'm dismayed so that I, I can't even see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. Oh, the twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. The oracle that Isaiah sees makes such an indelible mark on him physically and emotionally that he can only speak in terms of anguish, dismay, horror, and trembling. This is the man who one chapter earlier had to preach naked for three years. You would have thought that chapter 20 would be as low as Isaiah could get, but when Isaiah sees this message, somehow the vision of chapter 21 is even worse. Just as an aside, this is one of the things that we can tend to forget in our view of divine inspiration with the scriptures. We talk about the Bible being inspired, breathed out by God. But one thing that we tend to forget is that God's revelation comes through the unique personalities of particular human beings who felt things. So when God gave Isaiah this vision, he got physically sick because of it. This is why we don't hold to the view that some call mechanical inspiration, where God dictates his word through a prophet as though they were a puppet, or a robot. Now, when God inspires a biblical author, he does so in such a way that the author says and writes exactly what God once said and written while also preserving their own unique personalities and their experiences. Isaiah, as we see in verses 3 and 4, is obviously not a robot. God is not merely dictating words to him. The word of God comes to him with such force and such power that he is physically sick because of it. 
Brothers and sisters, it's notable that some of the men whom God has used most greatly through the ages are men who have had these kinds of experiences when confronted with the truth and the weightiness of God's word. Martin Luther grew so depressed that he wished for his own death. Charles Spurgeon often grew so depressed that his wife, Susanna, would have to physically get him out of bed on Sunday evenings so that he could go back to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and preach. Some of you perhaps have read Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, but you may not know that that book was birthed out of a lengthy and difficult season of personal depression that he himself went through. What we see with Isaiah is a crushing melancholy. In my experience, depression comes on Christians for a variety of reasons. In some instances, believers may get depressed because they live in fallen bodies in a cursed world. Brains misfire, bodies and hormones get out of balance. In other instances, a believer may grow depressed because they are intensely self-focused. The entire world is shrunk down to the size of their own personal concerns. And when the world gets shrunk down to the size of our personal concerns, our personal concerns can seem as big as the world itself. Yet in other instances, depression may be a symptom of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. You may remember that David wrote about the physical and the emotional toil of not confessing his sin. He said, I held my peace to no avail. Oh, my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. Elsewhere, he describes his own sin unconfessed as his bones wasting away. But none of these were, I suspect, the causes for depression among Luther, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, or even for Isaiah. Certainly not for our Lord Jesus in Gethsemane. But if it wasn't these reasons, then what was it? If we really believe the things that we profess to believe, we have to acknowledge that these truths weigh upon a human soul in a way that nothing else can. If we believe the realities of heaven and hell, of a God who saves and of a God who judges, then we are talking about something so weighty that there are times when the reality of these truths and the burden of proclaiming them to others can feel soul-crushing. Brothers and sisters, we have no use for a Christianity that is happy all the day. Is there joy in our faith? Oh yes, there is joy, indestructible, unspeakable, and full of glory. But there is also a grave seriousness about the things we believe. Like the fact that there is a God and he will judge and that his day of judgment will be as Isaiah described in Isaiah 13, cruel with wrath and with fierce anger. And then many people around us who refuse his offer of grace in Christ will die and then live again in a fixed state of conscious torment under the wrath of God forever. 
That includes our friends. That includes our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors. That perhaps might even concern some in our own church who are in reality goats that are just really, really good at looking and sounding like sheep. To borrow Jesus' imagery from Matthew 25. I pray it's not so. And there may be times when the man of God is so gripped by the truths revealed in the word of God and in having to speak hard words to hard-hearted people who are facing inscrutable judgments from God. That he feels the very weight of it in his soul. Jesus felt it in Gethsemane. Luther felt it. Spurgeon felt it. Lloyd-Jones felt it. Isaiah felt it. Do we feel it? Have we ever believed so much upon the truth of God's word without any equivocation, without any minimization, that when we imagine the estate of those who would not turn from their sin and trust in Christ and of our call to preach over and over and over to those who reject us over and over and over, does it weigh on our souls? Friend, if you are tuned in this morning, I would have you know that if you are not a Christian, if you are not one who is trusted in Christ, or perhaps you, you believe that you have, but there is nothing in your life whatsoever that gives any evidence to loving him or obeying him, you may not be a Christian. And if that's the case, oh friend, you need to consider very strongly the judgment that is yet to come as a consequence of your sin. Don't think that if consequences have not yet been felt and seen, they will not come, the bill will come. And I would urge you to consider Christ. I would urge you to consider that he came and lived a life of faithfulness and submission to the Father that you on your best days were a million miles away from that you have fallen short of the glory of God and you have sinned as we all have, transgressed a holy God and you are deserving of a holy punishment, transgressed an infinite God and you are worthy of infinite wrath. And yet that wrath is the very wrath that Jesus, the cup that he took on the cross in the place of every single man and every single woman who would turn from trusting in themselves and of trusting in this world, they would turn from their sin and they would throw all of their lives and their hope on Christ by faith. And they would know and be confident that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so will they be raised to new life. Friend, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. There is nothing else for you to hope in. What about Egypt? Not Egypt. What about Babylon? Not Babylon. There is no yeah buts when you stand at the bama seat of Christ. Did you trust Christ? Did you believe in him? 
Did you confess him as Lord and was your life submitted to him? Did you show love for him? Jesus said, those who love me, obey me. Or are you just playing around with religion? Because that's what we see happening in verse five. We see a people who are proud and rebellious against God and yet anoint all of their rebellion in the outward, anointing their pride in outward religious piety. We'll consider that here in just a moment. But Isaiah says here in verse four, my heart staggers. He was having heart palpitations. He was having a panic attack. Horror descended upon him and enveloped him. And when Isaiah realizes what Hezekiah has done and what Judah would endure as a result, it was the most oppressive and despairing experience of his life. And he says, the twilight that I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Oh, we see in the Psalms that nighttime was a time for rest and meditation upon one's bed. Perhaps for Isaiah, that was the time when he could rest from his labors and enjoy communion with God. But now he says, I can't even concentrate during my quiet times. Nighttime should be comforting and restful, but it's full of terror and it's full of trembling. Well, here it's as if Isaiah is standing in the place of the nation and he is saying, oh, Judah, night is coming for you. And it will be such a long night, a night full of panic and a night full of terror. And you don't even know it. You're just flying headlong into it. Oh, friend, listen to me. Stop right where you are. Turn and trust in Christ. Don't be as Judah is in verse five, for they prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat and they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. Isaiah begins to feel sick because in this vision, he sees a nation, a haughty people preparing for a holy war. And they're going to fight the Assyrians. And perhaps because of their new alliances, they're brimming with confidence. The great Isaiahic scholar, Matier said here we have a picture in verse 5 of after dinner speeches, of victory speeches before the battle has even been fought, presuming upon its victory. And in those speeches, they cry out, Arise, O princes, oil the shields. Literally, anoint the shields. The people of God are relying on the horses and the chariots of an ungodly nation for their own protection and preservation rather than on the strong arm of the Lord of armies. And they sanction their sin with religious piety. Anoint the shield. Certainly if we do that, God will be with us. Friends, are we not tempted to do the same thing today? American evangelicals have thought and believed for 40 years that if we could only be a strong enough political power, we can win this country back to God. It's been an apostasy away from trusting in the word of the one true God and of a turning to horses and chariots, all the while anointing our ballot boxes with oil. We cannot anoint the world with the oil of our religious piety and expect God to bless it. We say, well, if only we had the right man in the White House 
That is as stupid as saying, let's go to Egypt or Babylon to beat Assyria. Brothers and sisters, listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be politically active. I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote according to our Bible-bound consciences, and we shouldn't do so for the good of our neighbors. What I am saying is that ballot boxes and politicians may affect policies, but it doesn't transform societies. When Jesus said that the church is to be the salt of the earth, he didn't mean that the church would be such a powerful lobbying group that strong arms legislation to protect society from its own sin. Oh no, the church does have a calling. But it's not as a special, special interest group. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for and labor for moral transformation in our society. Those are legitimate desires. But the kind of transformation that we long for and that we pray for cannot be fulfilled by oiling our shields. Because all societal transformation begins with spiritual regeneration. And the means of grace used by God to bring spiritually dead people to spiritual life, to morally transform them by giving them new hearts on which his law is written, is through the faithful proclamation of the spirit-accompanied gospel of Jesus Christ. Our anointing is not on our shields, but on our preaching. The mission of the church is the message of the gospel. Because all lasting transformation comes by conversion. And conversion comes only by the faithful proclamation of the word of God. In fact, this is what we saw during a revival in Belfast, Ireland in the 1920s. Tens of thousands of Irish men and women came to Christ. So many, in fact, that they had to open up warehouses on the docks for people to come and return all the things they had stolen over the years. But there was no return the stolen property campaign. It was a spontaneous response to the power of the gospel as people were being brought to repent of sin and trust in Christ. The fifth century African bishop Augustine had, it, had the right balance, I think. He taught that every Christian was a citizen of both the city of man and the city of God. And that the priority of our citizenship always falls upon our citizenship in heaven. And our preeminent concern as believers in Jesus Christ is to be good citizens in the city of God. And if we're good citizens in the city of God, he says, it'll radically transform the kind of citizen that you are in the city of man. Brothers and sisters, is this not what we see in Acts chapter 19 when Paul is preaching? There we read that the power of the gospel, quote, became known to all the residents of Ephesus and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being extolled. Also, many of those who were not believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And get this, why did all this happen? 
Quote, because the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Did Paul and his companions start a book-burning campaign? Did they carry placards through the city that said, Citizens Against Witchcraft? No. He preached the gospel. And in God's providence, the word of God turned the city upside down such that some experts say that close to $20 million of witchcraft paraphernalia was burned in Ephesus that day. Brothers and sisters, the ballot box cannot bring transformation. Our social initiatives by themselves cannot bring transformation. The right man in the White House and better legislation cannot bring transformation. It is the power of God through the gospel of God that transforms. Let us be wary lest we grow proud like Judah, trusting in our own strength, and in horses and chariots and anointing them with our own religious piety. Let us not oil our shields as the pride Judeans did. Because the devil knows this better than any of us. He knows that the word of God accomplishes the work of God in the world. And it is his mission to convince us to ignore God's word and instead confide in our own strength and anoint our own shields as if that is what God will bless. He is a liar with multiple PhDs. And he knows the word of God and the hearts of men better than all of us. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't work in our own day. It certainly didn't work in Isaiah's day. And so for this reason, God gives Isaiah a job in verses six and following. Just as we saw in the first five verses to not trust in anything but God's word. So now we see beginning in verse six that God will accomplish his will according to his word. This is why we trust it. Verse six, for thus said the Lord to me, go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. The prophet is here called to take the position of a watchman at the post to report what he sees. A watchman is, it's a common feature in the Psalms and the prophets. That if a watchman sees the enemy coming and he warns the people inside the city and they don't listen to him, well, then he's free from their blood. That's their fault. But if he sees and he says nothing, then the blood of the people will be on his hands. That is how weighty this message is for Isaiah. God is saying, if you don't report exactly what you see and exactly what you hear, the blood of your people will be on your hands. So the watchman is to tell the people that all that God says, all that God shows, no more, not less, their job is not to make the people listen. Their job is simply to make the announcement. We see something similar in the New Testament, Acts 20. You may remember Paul recounting the faithfulness of his own ministry in Ephesus to the Ephesian elders, and this is what he says. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I left nothing out. Paul's saying, Ephesus may say we don't believe, but what Ephesus can't say is we didn't know. 
And that's exactly the task that God is given to Isaiah. They may not believe you. In fact, they probably won't. But what they can't say when judgment comes is that they didn't know because I've set a watchman. And so here he is declaring and warning everyone according to God's word. And that is what Isaiah is doing in verses seven and eight. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. And then he who sees cries out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day. And at my post I am stationed whole nights. At the beginning of verse 8, we see that Isaiah was one who cried out. Literally, he called like a lion. And I want you to notice that his calling out and announcing, his serving as a as a watchman on a watchtower, it's not something that he did just one time. It is something that he did tirelessly. That it was something that he did, verse 8, continually by day, and he was stationed whole nights. That is how weighty this call was on him. Brothers and sisters, the most important thing in the ministry of a church is the faithful preaching and announcing of God's word by a man of God who cares about pleasing God more than he cares about pleasing men. That he may be gentle with his flock, but he has got to be a lion in the pulpit. He's got to be unafraid to preach the whole counsel of God's word, even and especially the hard parts. The parts that may offend some, the parts that are a little bit more painful, the parts that aren't as happy all the days. That means that sometimes the preacher may go over your head. That may means that sometimes he may get under your skin. But it means that if he is faithful, he is wielding the word of God in such a way that he is taking dead aim at your heart. Oh, would you pray for me? And would you pray for every man in this church that takes this pulpit, each of our elders, that they would be men who roar like lions from this pulpit. They don't need to be dynamic personalities. They don't need to be incredible orators. They've got to be faithful to proclaim and announce the word of God no more and no less just as God has revealed it. And in the power of the spirit, applying it to our church in a way that is profitable for our godliness. Because in the final analysis, what matters is not how many people, how big our membership role is, In the final analysis, it's not how great the quality of our music is. It's not even now how great our live stream is. It's none of those things. In the final analysis, what matters is whether or not your pastors have built a church with the precious stones of Christ and his gospel, or whether they've done so with wood, hay, and straw. Because only one will endure the fire of judgment. You pray for us. Because nothing could be more important for this church than the faithful proclamation of the word of God and the gospel of God from men who are burdened to preach. Not because it's easy and not because people will like us. Men don't become pastors and elders to be liked. 
That if you have a desire to be an elder or brothers and sisters or brothers, if you are an elder currently serving in our church, then you need to be prepared to have people not only disagree with you, but even at times loathe you and accuse you. We must be men like Paul says that do not fear man, but fear God. And we stand as watchmen on the watchtower announcing, warning, admonishing, preaching, declaring what God has done in Christ and what he's coming again to do. Be prepared. That is our job. Pray for us. So Isaiah was set to be a watchman upon a wall, announcing what he hears and sees to a people who for the most part will not listen to him or believe him, but that's not his job. His job is simply to declare God's word and then let God's word do God's work according to God's will and God's time. In verse nine, here's the message. Behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods, he is shattered to the ground. I take this to be the Assyrian retaliation against Babylon in 689 BC, when all of a sudden Babylon, who thought they were something, were brought to nothing. This is who you want to trust in, Isaiah says. But notice, not only is Babylon shattered militarily, but at the end of verse 9, they are shattered theologically. All the carved images of her gods, he has shattered on the ground. Of course, God has prophesied this in his providence. He has brought it about. And he has shown once again that he is the one true God, the only one worthy of hope, hoping in. The reason that Isaiah brings this up in verse 9 is to remind Judah that it is futile to hope in Babylon. They cannot help you. Their gods cannot help you. Their promises cannot help you. Their might cannot help you. They are fundamentally opposed to God. And when all the dust settles, only God and those who trust in God will be left standing. Will you be counted among them? The apostle John picks up on Isaiah 21, 9 in his own revelation. Revelation 17 and 18, Babylon is now more than just a regional political power. It is a metaphor for the world system that is at war against God, at war against his word, and at war against his people. And in the final stage of human history, the angel announces God's victory using these words from verse 9. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Isaiah's message is John's message. It is futile to trust in anyone or anything other than the God of Israel. Verse 10, oh, my threshed and winnowed one. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Notice the change in his tone. All of a sudden the prophet's tone becomes tender. He calls them, oh, my threshed and widowed ones. More literally, my afflicted of the threshing or my son of the threshing. To be threshed is, on the one hand, to not be in very good shape. To be the son of the threshing floor, those afflicted of the threshing floor, is to be of even worse shape. Why does Isaiah address them this way? Because Isaiah is a realist. Babylon will fail. And in their failing, pain is coming. 
He says, true, if you refuse to ally with Babylon, life in the short term may get harder before it gets easier. Assyria is not going away anytime soon. I've already told you earlier in my prophecy that Assyria is going to come all the way up to the point of your neck. That is all the way up to Jerusalem. And you may think, well, we want to avoid that. Let's trust in Babylon. That doesn't sound very pleasant. I don't really want to be threshed. Let's ally with Egypt. Let's ally with Babylon. But here he said, don't do it. You've seen what waits for Babylon. And he says, true, if you refuse to ally with Babylon, life in the short term may get harder before it gets easier. You will get threshed. But underlying what Isaiah is preaching here is the truth that is true for all of us. And that is that nobody enters the kingdom of God by easy street. Remember what Paul and Barnabas told the churches in Acts 14? Through many afflictions, you must enter the kingdom of God. True obedience to God may lead to more affliction. It may lead to life getting harder, not easier. But consider who it is that is with you in affliction. It is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Isaiah is pleading with them. He's burdened for them to the point of despair because he's seen what awaits them should they trust in Babylon. And he's pleading with them, pointing them to the God of their hope. He says, trust in the Lord of armies. Trust in the God of Israel. It is better to obey God and be afflicted than to reject God for the prospect of momentary peace. Why does Isaiah use a double title for God here? The Lord of armies, the God of Israel. He's saying, don't trust in your shields. Don't trust in Babylon. Don't trust in the world. Trust in our covenant-making God, the God of promise and the God of protection. This God is none other than the God of Israel. He will be your hope. And brothers and sisters, he is to be our hope as well. Because in that title, the God of Israel, we recall that there was once a man named Israel who was chosen of God and that one man would eventually become a nation. And according to the covenant that God made with Adam and later Abraham, that nation would incubate a seed, a serpent crushing offspring that was promised to the woman all the way back in Genesis 3. This is the God of Israel. He is the God of Exodus. And even in the face of seemingly insurmountable opposition, when it seems like you've got no way out, trust in the Lord of armies. Trust in the God of Israel. Remember what he has done for you and remember his promises to you. That even in the face of seemingly insurmountable opposition, as we see here in chapter 21, God's promise to Israel did not fail until it was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the son of Jacob, and the true Israel. 
Now it is that every person who is brought by God's grace to repent and to put their trust in Christ alone instead of Babylon and its promises are united to him by faith and are counted among the true Israel of God. Our victory is assured. Babylon will fall. And yet in the meantime, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Jesus has promised us, just as Isaiah is promising Judah, that obedience will be costly. That we will be threshed by this world. Just this morning, I read about five pastors who were taken into custody in China because they found out that they were having private prayer meetings and worship gatherings over Zoom. The world will thresh us. Because Babylon is ultimately opposed to God, his word, and his people. But our confidence must not be in our comforts, and it cannot be in our shields, as if the right road must be the easy road. I fear that far too many of you believe that. That there's something inherently wrong with hard and that it can't be the right road unless it's the easy road that leads to more comfort. That is not what we find in the Bible. Obedience will be costly. As one brother recently put it, ministry is war. And he's right. But he also said, Jesus is the captain of the Lord's army. He is the Lord and protector of his church. And he will win the battle. I want to conclude with this quote from Isianic scholar Matier. He says this, commenting on verse 10. It is all too easy amid the battering of life to opt for an apparent escape or relief based on compromise. It is hard to maintain the walk of faith, to believe that when crushed, we are still his people. That it is on his floor that we are being threshed and that our safety and security consists in remaining there with lion-like obduracy right where we are in his care who is the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. It is better to be threshed with the God of Israel than to be prosperous with Babylon. Oh, may we believe that for the glory of Christ.